Onion Minutes. I am your returning host for this week, Austin Pryor, and my guest for the week is Leandra Lynn. Hello. Glad to be here. Good stuff. And you are uh, not a returning guest this season, but I believe you were on last season at the uh, Knives Out. Is that right? I'm not sure that I made it on to that one, but I feel like I've been okay. on a bunch of the movie by minutes. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. And of course, your own one is um, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yep. It's Rocky Horror Minute. So... It's a lot stuff, of fun. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So this is minute number 56. Our minute runs from zero hours, 55 minutes and zero seconds, all the way up to zero hours, 55 minutes, 59 seconds and 24 frames. Our minute consists of Claire continuing her lashing out at Andy and ends with Andy declaring, I want the truth! Triggers the... Uh, glass to come down to protect the precious Mona Lisa um yeah so uh, any thoughts on this minute Leandra honestly I thought that this was a really great Catherine Hahn um, Claire moment she really yeah. killed that monologue like it was it was really fun to watch uh watch her go from I'm really trying to hold it together to just getting uh, getting all of that frustration out yeah yeah and of course she kind of has to play it. I suppose she just plays it, you know, as as the dialogue goes. And, and I'm sure, you know, she knew, obviously, the whole context of it. But the the scene has to make sense and have the right amount of mystery for us if we don't really know what happened. Um, and so, because this is like... Do you want to know why we did it? First time seeing the movie, this is actually exposition here. Yes. It's not just a confrontation. Like, it doesn't read like an exposition when you're used to the film. But, like, you know, um, she has just said in the previous minute, we all went with Miles. And then she's continuing that, you know. It, really? Why? Do the math. It's easy math. It's the kind of exposition that's really beautifully done because it's, there's enough intrigue. You don't feel like you're being dumped with information. You feel like you're overhearing a conversation where you're like, what can that mean? I don't have the full context. And then on repeated viewing, it all kind of, you know, f flows better and, and, and uh, you understand everything that comes out of it. The, yeah. That's one of the things that, uh, that the first Knives Out film also did a really great job with. Um, just not having any moments where you as the audience go like, okay, I, I get that this is kind of a down moment and we need to have this information, but I'm a little bored. There's really none of that. It's uh, everything's paced so well. Yeah, it's all woven in. And I, I always notice on repeated viewing just of, of any kind of film, whether whether I've whether it has a lot of this kind of recontextualizing and mystery or anything that like lines that I completely forgive I don't, or not not even forgive just don't notice as a problem the first time i watch a film um later i'm like well how how did that not feel clunky to me the first time i watched it you know like um some line that uh, uh, you know establishes the two characters are brother and sister or whatever you know i always think of the line uh, how long have we been brothers and it's <laughs> just like <laughs> something nobody would ever say yeah. and that you're trying to crowbar it in but like Maybe not that bad, but but some films I watch and I'm like, how did I not 
think that was bad. And I think the first time you watch a film, you're just kind of appreciating the information. And you're just like, oh, now I know that. And so you're kind of glad to hear it. And you don't really notice that it's kind of clunky and, and shoehorned in. But you can't accuse, you know, either of these movies of doing that because every bit of, every kind of scrap of information you're getting in one of these, um, one of these mysteries is like, is a little kind of gold nugget that you're like, oh, I need it, I need more, you know. Um, so he just, yeah, he just keeps you guessing. But um, yeah, so Claire, so like Catherine Han, yeah, she really shines here. And it's like the close-up of her face also kind of uh, emphasizes the sunburn, which she really went for in this, which I didn't actually get the first time I saw it. I just thought it was like, she just kind of red faced or she had, you know, that they were going for. She had slightly bad skin or whatever, you know. Um, but of course, it's a payoff from earlier in the movie when she's, you know, this kind of harried, hurried uh, soccer mom who's putting on her, her sunblock poorly and um, she and it's blotchy. And so she misses bits and now she's got these red spots, which I just think is amazing. Um just as a detail i initially was like oh wow so she's red faced because she's very drunk and of course you see in uh, yeah. in later minutes that she's far drunker than i think that the audience is aware of um at this point at least because she's so oh, in control you. yeah yeah um and and of course the kind of the Catherine hans like commitment to this role and her like you know <laughs> there's a lot of jokes in the kind of behind the scenes and um the commentary and everything about how like everybody got to look uh so fabulous and it would dress amazingly and then her wardrobe was like all beige <laughs> and then she spends most of the film in sunburn so she's absolutely like sacrificing her you know her image and her you know the the actor's ego um to, for the role and for which just made me think about how how important that is for an ensemble you know what i mean because this is nobody's movie and um yeah just made me think about stuff i was learning about uh you know big movie stars and and the writers they have and they like the the, the way they have like uh, like the rock uh dwayne johnson has a requirement in his contract that his character can never lose a fight <laughs> So, so even early in the film, or you know, if you want to put, you know, put your character kind of down in the doldrums at the end of Act Two for him to rise up, it's like, no, no, he has to be great all the time, and it's just like, and everybody loves The Rock, and you know, he comes across as a very good guy and a very you know, charming and everything. So I don't want to knock him, but like, I can. That is okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that, he, he, that that's like such a terrible way to approach storytelling you know <laughs> like um yeah yeah i uh you can say all you want about uh, hating the rock with me because i am definitely not a fan um it's just i, I think that he is um well overhyped um yeah although uh, Dave Bautista, I think, is kind of this generation's The Rock, and I think that he's he's coming at it in a completely different direction, and I think that yeah. he's going to become a much better actor through it all. I don't think he's there yet. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, because like, there are some moments in this movie 
uh, and we'll get to them this week where I think his acting is kind of questionable. We'll, t- we'll talk about it then. Um, but I know that um, I know that Ryan Johnson's a huge believer in him and um, and he's like saying this guy has depths to show that that, uh, you know, haven't even been revealed yet, you know, Um and I'm perfectly willing to uh, to to believe that and and to accept that. But certainly, yeah, his approach is like, I want to get into this acting thing. You know, I want to be like, you know, and his his very understated, uh, very downplayed presence in Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a great example of that. And it's kind of like signaling to the audience and signaling to Hollywood and agents and, you know, uh, directors and everything that's like, no, I'm, I'm interested. I want to engage in this and not where, whereas like the rock is like, I'm building, I play the rock in it. Well, he, he doesn't call himself that anyway. I, I play Dwayne Johnson in every movie and I'm building my brand and that's how I do Hollywood, you know? Um, but yeah, I forgot even about the, the, the wrestling connection that they're both, that they're, they're interesting contrast that, that pair. I, that, I really enjoy kind of watching the progression of uh, of actors as they build their uh, build their abilities just through their work and I think that in maybe 10 years we're going to be looking back and going wow Dave Batista was maybe not great in Glass Onion but he sure is great now <laughs> at least that's my hope yeah 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 um and I de- I definitely don't think he's bad here oh yeah um Agreed. And we'll get to him in 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 Batista minutes. But um, <laughs> so, what about um, Catherine Han? What's your kind of perception of her, and what 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 do you, what's your like touchstone parts for her, and where she comes from, and what she's about? I I'm just a huge fan of her in general. I think that uh, particularly in this, the you you talk about how she's in beige. She gets uh, she has a sunburn, so she doesn't look as glamorous as everybody else. But I still think that she looks like one of the classiest people uh, in this in this room. Uh, she uh, she just is. She has some level of gravitas that I think that um, she can't ever turn off. And mm-hmm. she could be wearing a burlap sack, and I'd still go, oh yeah, you're really cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And when you so you kind of mean classy in more like the internal way, like she she has the way she carries herself and the way you know this quality she has. Um, yeah, uh, I can I can definitely see that. Um, I've just seen her in relatively few things. You know, I've I've um, really I suppose this um, Parks and Rec and um, WandaVision are the things I know her from and I've probably seen her in smaller parts and not know, not noticed or whatever over the years but um, but yeah she's always like yeah her character in Parks and Rec is like starts very uh, small and, and you know but she just does so much with it and like a lot of that show was based on bringing people in for their personality and their ability ability to improvise and she really shone in that and she ends up getting like much more involved in plots in later episodes when she comes back and stuff because like the writers you know knew what to do with her more and that's always a sign of a good actor and a, and somebody who who gets character and is committed to character you know and you also kind of get the impression that she's probably easy to work with too um yeah yeah, very, she's if if she is willing to subsume her ego, 
for for the role that bodes well about you know what kind of person she is and and what kind of yeah i think a, a lot of the kind of incentives in hollywood are, are changing after me too even for people who are kind of nothing to do with like you know uh, sexual assault or 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 um you know those those kind of behaviors but just in general like being being good and decent seems to be kind of rewarded more rather than the older way like which was like the the you know the biggest uh, baddest um ego in the room kind of wins out you know i think that that's why knives out as a franchise is really having a good moment right now because you've got Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, this incredibly uh, nice and non, uh, non-aggressive sort of um, untoxic uh, masculinity. Yes. Yeah, and he's absolutely masculine as well and comfortable being a man. And like a lot of the discourse about, you know, about toxic masculinity and about, you know, the, the breastification as, uh, as uh, Duke says, is, is like, it comes down to the idea that, you know, all oh, men can't be men anymore. And it's like, no, that that's not what that means, <laughs> you know, um, and there are, and there always have been if you, if, if we're willing to dig deeper men who are like absolutely men and embody male kind of masculine characteristics um and have a kind of even a commanding presence but but have it without the um the kind of bs that's often associated with all that and uh yeah we need we need more um we need more benoit blancs and fewer miles bronze yes and I think that, that I think this is a very good setup. Uh, this is a very good week to kind of explore that. I'll put it that way. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely teasers for what's coming up. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to mention the song in case it wasn't mentioned last week. It's coming in from last week's episodes. This is Country Roads by uh, Toots and the Maytels, a uh, cover of the old uh, John Denver song. And I kind of think it's interesting here because it's a real little. So it's a really good cover, um, but it kind of makes me think of like hipsters going like, you know, this isn't your grandpa's John Denver song. You know, that like c cool covers and unexpected covers of songs became a big thing to put in playlists at parties like about 10 years ago, you know, and it just makes me, it just kind of pitch perfect for Miles Braun to make himself feel like a real crate digger that he found this thing that like, you know, a lot of people do know about, but I can, ju I can just imagine Miles Braun talking about this. It's like, it's, you know, but it's reggae. It's Tooth and the Meta, you know. <laughs> um, it, it is also a really good uh, recording, but. Uh, I like that it's very discordant with everything that's going on in the, the in yes. the scene. Um, yeah. This, I the I have a theater background, and uh, this week of scenes in particular kind of uh, frames the the story as a drawing room play, uh, just yes. kind of very kind of your standard uh, 
murder mystery that all happens in one room and instead of going to a different location for the actors you have the actors coming in and out and yes yeah. uh, i think that in particular with the discordant music and the fact that everybody is just so angry at each other that in this minute it feels less like a murder mystery and more like um no exit <laughs> what's no exit um it's the uh, it is a play where it's just uh, three people in a waiting room in hell. It's where hell's okay. other people comes from. And oh, right. Okay. It just, it's very much a, um, every, everything in the, the, in that room is yeah. ostensibly comfortable, but it's still an yes. awful, awful situation. You come here in your Gucci flats telling us Valentino. that we owe you. You made money off of Alpha all those years. You did fine. You got yours. I got it. No, he got his from me. All of it. My life was taken away from me by someone, by everyone in this room. My life. Uh, yeah, yeah. So like the social awkwardness played up. Yeah, yeah, because this this scene is driven by social awkwardness in the very extreme sense, because Andy's mere presence here is seen as an act of war. It's seen as like the disruptor, you know, is what she is what she is, and uh, Claire just has to call it out. She has to say, you know, in the last minute, the elephant in the room, and she's addressing it, and and like she just can't take it anymore. The and I would be. I would be like that. Uh, I don't think I'd be as confrontational, but I would definitely be like, no, I'm calling it out. Everybody's thinking it. I can't not say it. Speak your mind, you know. Um, and I think there's the reason she's being so aggressive, um, I think shows signs of guilt. You know what I mean? Um, and I... It kind of relates to assumptions about the internal lives of these characters that um that i don't know where you lie uh on you know how good and bad these characters are and where on that kind of continuum you'd put the various characters but i tend to watch things with like a benefit of the doubt approach and i tend to see that like even when people are behaving really awfully that they're probably you know uh, justifying to themselves in some way and they're probably um uh you know because everybody thinks they're the good guy with a tiny number of exceptions and uh yeah so so in the commentary and in in things that um ryan johnson has said about the film is just like you know he basically talks about these people as being really despicable um and i think he means that in like an external way but sometimes he seems to be, you know, dismissing the idea that they would have a conscience and that they would have much of an internal life, which I think is really interesting for a writer-director to say, and certainly isn't how an actor could approach their role. You know what I mean? You're, if you start from the point of view of thinking, well, this guy's a son of a, you know, whatever, <laughs> um, then you're not going to, you're not going to do a good job, you know? Um, so, so what do you think of, of Claire here and how much of a human being she is and how much of a conscience she is, has? So I think that it kind of goes back to the, uh, if you're, if you think about it, 
most people, most characters, most uh, most roles, they don't consider themselves as supporting characters in their story. Mm-hmm. Um, you would, I, I would think, uh, consider yourself a protagonist in your uh, in your own life, and yeah. uh, it's interesting because Miles has brought all of these people along. So you have a room full of people who are very, very aware of the fact that they are supporting actors in somebody yes. else's story. And I think Catherine Hahn, I think that her character really is trying to break free of that. She's trying to have her own life. She's trying to be her own star. And the yes. frustration with that uh, really pulls through with uh, her anger at Andy uh, for for not being not being able to just let the past die. <laughs> if the past can die, then she can stop being a supporting actor at some point. But if the past can't yes. die, then they're stuck in this in this waiting room. Yeah, and of course, some of it could be transference as well, because Claire, uh, her her frustration, a lot of Claire's frustration, I'm sure, comes from the fact that she's being bankrolled by Miles, and we've already seen a lot of um, indications that she um, doesn't really like Miles and resents the the bankrolling. And she's describing it in this very transactional way in this speech where she says, do the math. It's easy math. And so there's nothing about like we stuck with Miles because he's our oldest friend and he, you know, helped us when we needed none of that. It's not about loyalty. It's about the cold, hard calculation. And I definitely read this that she, um, you know, it, it definitely has those frustrations about not, as you say, not being the main character and not being able to. Um, you know, and and relying on you know, um, sucking on the the golden teas uh, of of Miles Braun, but that also I do think she has a conscience, and I do think that she feels bad um, for whatever they've done to um, squeeze Andy out that we don't yet know at this point, and I, yeah, and I think giving a character the benefit of the doubt like that is always more interesting. And I think it's certainly how um, actors have to play them. Um, now, you're, I think, more of an actor than I am. I've done a couple of voice roles, but, we, but you have an acting background. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so when you're when you're approaching you're looking for the internal life you're looking for the conscience and the you know ego and whatever so like you wouldn't approach like anybody as a um, mustache twirling villain i would imagine no i mean even uh, even if you're playing a mustache twirling villain uh, what what audiences tend to key off of is uh, is more than that they like seeing uh, seeing things happen on stage, not just physically, but also uh, just seeing a character develop and yeah. having those aha moments. And you can't really do that if you are not just, I'm the heel, the heel is yes. me. Yeah, pure malevolence. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think for basically it works in the professional wrestling ring and, and not outside it. Hashtag we hate the rock. 
<laughs> That's great. Um, so when we have really nice little moments here of like cutting back to um, to Birdie a couple of times for for her little take on like uh, that 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 Andy's flats are not Gucci; they're in fact Valentino. Um, which she is that that's a notch down. I take it. I don't know. I, I don't know much about I, my designers. I, I think yeah. that what she's trying to imply is uh, she has a much better eye for fashion than yes than Claire does. Yeah. And, and so yeah, Claire comes in and calls him Gucci flats, and it's just like uh, yeah, Valentino, and, and yeah, because she's like, and I think there's a lot of that in this movie where characters are going like, that's my thing, you know. And like, I need to have a thing. And, and, and so Birdie has a lot of moments like that where she's like, uh, Valentino, because I'm the one who knows about that stuff. And um, even though, like, I expect her to be like genuinely knowledgeable, even though earlier in the movie, um, she's like talking to uh, Benoit and she's like uh, touching his shirt and feeling, and it's like, what fabric is this? It's, a, you know, really. Uh, and he's like, oh, cotton, I think. And, uh, <laughs> and it, you know, it clearly is. Uh, and so she seems like, she seems dumb there. I mean, obviously she seems dumb in general, but she seems to like, in the one area that she should know about, uh, which is textiles and fashion and everything. She's actually seems like she's uh, so I kind of thought on repeated viewing that that moment was maybe a bit off and a bit at odds with this moment where she's like correcting people of like no Valentino, you know. I think that this is also a really great minute for uh, for Birdie Kate Hudson um, because after Catherine Hahn has this incredibly mean-spirited monologue. Do you even know what that means? Huh? What Claire's trying to say is we're sorry. We feel bad for you. What do you want? Are you really asking me that? Yes, what do you want? A check? You want performative pity? Just tell us the right words that we can use so that we can get on with our lives. Yeah. Uh, she says, what Claire's trying to say is we're sorry. <laughs> no, that's not what she's trying to not, say. Not what Quite she's trying to say at all. And also, it's also not what Birdie is trying to say, because right. in the next breath, she's like, we're sorry, we feel bad for you. And it's like so clearly lip service. And you can imagine that this is the tone that any of her like Twitter apologies are dripping with when she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I, it was a tribute to Beyonce. You know, you don't get it, whatever. You know, I feel bad. OK, I said it, you know, and uh, so that she's going. Yeah. So which leads us into like. Um, what do you want? And even the way she kind of says it like a high school mean girl and kind of delivers it in that way with the kind of squinted eyes as she says, what do you want? You know, and, and it's um, it, <laughs> it's just such a brilliant delivery and it just kind of, you know, I guess there are people like that who, who molded, who, whose personality was molded by the social pressures and incentives of the like uh, American high school popularity race uh, and who've never moved beyond it um, because Birdie just, you know, seems like she is that. Um, which, which brings me to a question I kind of tend to ask Americans, like is, it, are American high schools really like that? <laughs> um. Or what was... Yes, 
they are very much like that with the caveat that um as somebody who's in the movie by minute uh, kind of group i certainly yeah. wasn't one of the popular kids <laughs> <laughs> so well you were you were you were a theater kid as as we've already established i wasn't even a theater kid at that point i was uh okay uh, i was in marching band and i was an orchestra i was like a music nerd and a goth okay. kid and um and that meant that i kind of much like everybody else in the world watched the popular kid hierarchy from the outside because i certainly wasn't wow. part of that yeah yeah and much like every screenwriter and director and and like all of the people who are kind of doing interesting creative things nowadays and um and that's kind of an oft discussed thing of like you know the the real life revenge of the nerds um but uh but yeah because like i know that talking to people in ireland about like their high school experience and um and how it formed them and stuff that like there's definitely popularity contests. There's definitely cliques and, and, but it just never seems as, um, hierarchical and as kind of codified as, as the American system. And I always thought that that was like movies just cr creating this kind of codification of things that were just kind of more subtle trends. Um, and obviously any movie is more simplified, uh, than, than any reality, but the more I learn and the more I talk to people, it seems that like the, it's only a bit of an exaggeration in the movies. Yeah, I mean, it's like you that you get into into your typical American high school and you have to fit yourself into a little box and stay in that mm. box, um, or you're not going to have friends. And wow. once you're in that box, you kind of have to figure out where you are in the in the food chain. So mm. I I very much. Um, I'm shocked actually to hear that that's not the case around the world. And you know, and I mean, I don't want to speak for all of Ireland by any means. And I certainly have spoken to people who've had a much worse time in, in um, secondary school, as we call it. And I'm, you know, fairly, um, you know, sociable and, and didn't have problems making friends and stuff, but I definitely would have had problems making friends in a, in like a, a more strict hierarchy because like there were the sports kid and they were kids and they were generally more popular, but there was, the, uh, there was nobody in my year that wouldn't talk to me or I wouldn't talk to them unless there was some particular beef or whatever. You know what I mean? There'd be, there'd be nobody that you would like consider your social lessers and wouldn't sit near or whatever. Like any of that stuff was just like, and I think we had a nice school with a nice ethos and there was only like 600 students as well. So that's, that really helps, you know, because I think like the, the, the huge size of some of these high schools is like creates this, you know, um, you, you, you get a certain critical mass that creates like a, a microcosm of society and, and, and you get this stratification kicking in. Um, how did we get talking about that? Yeah, because Birdie, it is, it's kind of relevant because like Birdie gives such a mean girl kind of response here and such, she just oozes that American high school popular girl uh, vibe, you know? And she, um, yeah, and so then we get to Andy's response so we only get a tiny bit of it so we're probably going to be talking more about Andy in the next minute but we get to Andy with her you want revenge you want to slit Miles throat you want to take us all down what just drop the bombshell say it say it and 
I'm sure you thought of the same thing I did as soon as she said, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I just think like that line is so famous. And even if you've never seen A Few Good Men, even if you don't even know what film it's from, you've heard the line. I, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. And, and the Simpsons did it with, you know, you know, truth handler, you, I deride your truth handling <laughs> ability. And, and like, we, it's just so much a part of the, uh, of the kind of whatever, the, the cultural conversation that I kind of think it has to be a reference. It has to be, or is, is Ryan Johnson just writing that line thinking, well, you know, sometimes people want the truth and it can't be the only, you know, Tom Cruise in that movie can't be the only one who gets to say that in a movie, <laughs> which, which is kind of a fair point. Cause I kind of, I can't believe, I can't conceive that he wouldn't have noticed it or, or, you know what I mean? I think that there's no way that it made it into the final cut uh, like that without somebody going uh, just kind of internally, you can't handle the truth. Uh, so yeah, somebody exactly. somebody knew. I'm sure that Ryan Johnson knew. Yeah. And he has to. Yeah. Instead, of, uh, instead of taking time to either lampshade it or... Uh, or hand wave Change it. Change the line. Uh, he just went, yeah. you know, let's just go with it. We're fine. Yeah, Because it is fine. And it's still a good moment and everything. But it just, it is kind of talking about the elephant in the room. It, it's kind of the elephant in the room here. It's kind of like that line is, is too famous. And what it also makes me think is like, surely the characters in that situation are all thinking it as well. <laughs> like, well. like if we could see somebody in the background, like maybe Peg, it's just, you can't handle it. Like she's wording those, <laughs> that line Absolutely. to herself or something, you know? So that brings us into talking about Janelle Monet, who has this incredibly layered performance, um, layers that we'll discuss uh, in detail later on, of course. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and you're looking at, kind of the the words that she's choosing and it's not surprising that maybe uh maybe andy as a character would say those words and maybe even know that uh, that it comes from a few good men yeah because like it has the fact that it's been in a movie kind of has rhetorical power it gives it it's even though tom cruise is the one who says I want the truth and he's very powerful in that moment but he's immediately undercut by Jack Nicholson saying you can't handle the truth which is the zinger which is the winning line of the kind of um if you know if having a, a zinger and having a, a more aggressive put down is is the way you win an argument and it certainly is in in uh, a dramatic scene like that so it's kind of if she is using the rhetorical power of that scene, she's kind of setting herself up for failure. Um, but nobody, nobody says you can't handle the truth to her. Nobody uh, puts her in that place. Then, um, I, I just looking at the script here. There's only one difference, a couple of tiny differences of of the order that I was talking about earlier of like sweeping words around and stuff. But the only difference of note was that in the script there's this small difference where at the end of our minute when andy says i want the truth 
she delivers that line loud enough, loudly enough to trigger the protective shield on the Mona Lisa going up. Whereas in the uh, in the script, it's a ding of a Google alert going off that sends it up. And uh, so it's more like, um, what do you call it? Pathetic fallacy, you know, where the environment, uh, pathetic fallacy is usually about weather, but you, you know what I mean? Where like the environment is kind of like playing along and, um, and where the, the, it happens to happen at that dramatic moment where the ding goes off. But of course, her voice being powerful enough, it works much better that it's her voice and that she's shouting the line um, and that that sends the, the thing up. And of course, the image of a face with a shield going up over it is like, you know, defensive, obviously. And so that's just really effective. But but throughout this sequence, the, the um, ding is used to great effect to ratchet the tension. And in the commentary, um, Ryan Johnson mentions that that was something they really discovered in the edit. Um, but it, but funnily enough, it is actually in the script that the, it keeps doing this at some moments. So I think what he must mean is that it was kind of planned in the script, but then they discovered in the edit how effective it could be, how much they would put it in and how they could play around with it. Because it happens a lot of the time just in the background and just nobody is talking about it and like for me i don't know how you are about you know noise and and stuff like i it's so effective on me because i hate like phones going off and dings and beeps when there doesn't need to be and the sound of that like i i would be completely of the argument like can we just leave the shield up and then it's protected and it's like it shouldn't be here just protected at all times and we'll have the occasional viewing of it down but like shields up you know for me um what do you think so uh, that combined with just the very cheerful music in the background um, it's yeah. just constant tension, and uh, and there's always something in the background that's trying to pull your attention away from what you're doing, and it's just forever uh, causing anxiety, particularly if you have any sort of uh, inability to stay focused. So yeah. uh, it's a really... It's a really great device for trying to divert attention. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it just, it it kind of adds to the, like, sensory overload of, like, all of these people with all of their, um, you know, I, speaking personally, I'm, I, I love parties. I'm very comfortable in a room full of people because I'm kind of, I feel like I've got a read on them. But if I'm in a, if I'm in a room full of people who are like annoyed at one another or there's attention it's like I just like it kills me I can't function that's why I'd be like a Claire whereas it's like I need to get this out in the open um whereas I think a lot of other people would just find find a group of people especially strangers like that's disorientating in and of itself or that's like off-putting or overwhelming in and of itself probably because you know they can't get a read on people or whatever how are you in that kind of situation i am so bad in crowds i'm really lame in parties um <laughs> don't invite me places because i'll put 
I go into one of two modes. I either don't talk with anybody or I start telling a story. And uh, I remember one time I was at a party and uh, one of my very old friends was like, oh, I love when Leander holds court and uh, it's storytelling time. And I went (laughs) uh, and I immediately left. Oh, no. I was just like, oh, no, I this is bad, bad and not good. And was just immediately embarrassed. But there are multiple pictures of me at parties where people are just like sitting and listening to me spin a yarn about something. And I I used to grimace about it because I go, I, that's not my intention. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I think I, I think that's really interesting because because like I do I do that, too. And I do have a certain amount of like self awareness where I'll go like, oh, okay, read the room, climb down from the from the pedestal or from the stage if if that's not what people are into or whatever. But you know, mostly I'll find that you know I I do kind of tend to hold court, and it's and it's generally like you know, well, it's not for me to say whether people like it, but I my reading is that uh, that it's okay. Um, but I think isn't that might be to do with gender as well that like you know I, I was socialized to always like you know that I the message I received from society was speak out be big um you know even if certain teachers or other authority figures wanted to kind of diminish me and put me in my place a bit like the the overwhelming kind of message was that you should be big and you should be confident and whereas the message to girls is very different and is much more about fitting in and much more about like not you know ruffling any feathers or whatever so um I would, without meaning to be armchair psychiatrist, (laughs) I wonder if that's kind of partly why, you know, because I think we we all kind of wince, you know, with a bit of healthy self-awareness when somebody calls out a particular behavior and says, do I do that? You know, but like, um, yeah, for me, I'd be much kind of, I'd be more comfortable, uh, you know, with somebody telling me that I do that, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And if I were in this room, I know that you uh, would be more of the Claire um, in uh, in the room. I I would be one of the many people who is not interacting with the scene in any way. And they're just like drinking their drink and going, oh, this is too big. This is a lot of emotion Um, because I I do not do well with that with confrontation yeah yeah well i mean i i i would yeah like i i hate confrontation as well and that's why i would like i would be my whole thing would be like hey let's talk and i'd be i'd be trying to do it from a come on you obviously have a grievance let's let's get it out you know um but like that has a risk to it as well and i've definitely like my my you know impulse control has got me in in trouble in social <laughs> situations as well over the years but i just think it's it's fascinating watching the group dynamic and of course a good screenwriter can not only put 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 um themselves into each character and think about how that character would react in a given situation but here you, when you've got an ensemble the like the overall vibe of the room because he's writing the kind of um the atmosphere he's writing the where the room is going and that doesn't just come from like calculating out each character and their set of preferences and predilections and and kind of like simulating the whole thing it comes out from kind of having been in rooms having read rooms and just kind of feeling because you have to write the atmosphere 
and um, I think a lot of screenwriters who the the skills that are on display here of really good character work and being able to read a room and being able to communicate how how the tension in the room is 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 manifesting um and also being able to do the kind of puzzle box and the very plotty very kind of um like mathematical uh, logical parts of the like those two skills don't usually go together and um uh, if you've ever like read kind of you know fan fiction or stuff like that you'll see some you'll see you know a hugely disproportionate representation of, of the kind of the very plotty uh stuff where the dialogue and the characterizations are horrible but they obviously have this kind of world building idea that they want to get into you know i i couldn't agree more and i think that this as a sequel uh, had a lot that it had to live up to and i think that it very much stuck the landing with the with the way that it treated its dialogue as a way of of moving the plot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i think it's like it's you know people have their problems with ryan johnson and i don't think this is a perfect movie and and, no. and i would have my own issues with it and stuff but like the way he can you know the how much of it he has on the page first of all is really impressive when you read the script and compare it and then how talented he is for casting and, and how obviously he has a talented casting agent working with him as well um or casting director rather but he um but yeah it's all it, like all of those kind of fundamentals of character are so so are working so well here you know but um yeah, so that's a quite a big discussion there. <laughs> um, any more notes for um, minute fifty six? Uh, none from me. Cool. Well, um, uh, yeah. So the Monday question is uh, to you, Leandra. Did you see this film on its brief uh, one week cinematic release? No, but I very much wanted to, and it felt like all of my friends did, and Aww. I was so so irritated that i didn't make it out yeah okay yeah and so um you saw it on it's like netflix was it was it a thing for you did you get to see it with friends or was it you know just something you just needed to see straight away get out of the way i needed to see it right away so i just uh, as soon as it was out i was like ooh. yeah yeah i think uh the next you know that the, when the next one comes up uh, i'm definitely gonna try and, and catch it in the cinema which i didn't get to this time around and uh yeah, hopefully make it a, a bit more of a, a group thing uh, because it's just a lot of a lot of fun, this kind of movie, you know, for that. Uh, and, the, and the kind of the drinks afterwards with the talking and the other oh, this bit and that bit. And did you cop that? Did you know about that? <laughs> uh, how are you in general with like when you're watching a movie like this? Are you really actively playing along and trying to figure everything out? Or are you kind of letting it wash all over you? I all, letting it all wash over you. <laughs> I really like just kind of experiencing it um, and not trying to read into things. I, I love the, oh, I didn't catch that sort of feeling. Yes. Um, so yeah. I'm actively kind of turning off that analytical part of my brain so that I can just kind of experience it. But the second time I watch it, 
That's yeah. what I know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I don't even think I can turn on my analytical brain on the first uh, on the first viewing of any film. The film is like completely real to me. I was like, well, what do you mean where it's going? We have no idea where it's going. This is all just real playing out in front of us. You know what I mean? Um, the characters will make their decisions and it will be, you know, uh, and then uh, m- much more willing and able to jump into the the mechanics of it afterwards and that's what's uh, that's what's so great about movies by minute um so i think that is time to wrap it up uh for today and thank you so much for joining me leandra uh do you want to do you want to pick a podcast to promote here or um any other thing you want to plug sure um i'll go ahead and plug my podcast it is rocky horror minute we break down the rocky horror picture show in excruciating excruciating detail one minute at a time you can find us at rockyhorrorminute.com Excellent. And um, if listeners want to pick up my old podcast, which will maybe come back one day, it's at MalkovichMinute.net. And it's um, being John Malkovich minute by minute. Um, Yes. So if you want to follow the show, it's uh, all on Twitter at GlassOnionMin, all one word. And while you're here, if you can rate, review, and make sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice, that would help the show. Thank you so much. Bye for now, and be sure to come back tomorrow for another Glass Onion Minute. Hey, Mike, can I get a minute?